from uh, about 15 years on up, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast. My name is Alyssa Carroll, and here we talk about serial killers as well as delve into other topics within our beloved true crime community. I come at this from a psychological perspective, so we look at past family members, childhood experiences, and other things that could have contributed to these people evolving into who they became. Special thanks to my patrons who voted for this episode. Thank you so much. You are truly appreciated. And for anyone else, please feel free to join my patrons so that you can vote on who will be covered next or get early access to the podcasts like, share, and subscribe, it might just help our little community grow. Some announcements, quickly. October Halloween extravaganza is quickly approaching. And while I always have these grand ideas on specials and putting together, you know, several extra podcasts and the whole thing, time is a major constraint for me because I also, as many of you know, have a regular stressful full-time job. So this year, I'm only going to be able to do the Murder in the News twice a week, which is not terribly difficult for me, and the main podcast only once as usual. But the subject matter of those once-a-week podcasts have been planned ahead to be fun for Halloween, as I've tried to do every year. So I promise it'll still be good. Also, I'm putting together some ideas for a sort of quote in the future website for the podcast that will be fun for all. I'm hoping to add some level of interactive details, so stay tuned there. I'm also going to be revamping merch pretty soon, so there's a lot of plates spinning, but enough of that. Today's podcast was voted for by patrons, and it's going to be on the serial killer Christopher Wilder. So, Christopher Bernard Wilder was born on March 13, 1945, in Sydney, Australia. So, as we do, let's get into some history for that time. This is the year that we see World War II come to an end. Adolf Hitler moved into his underground bunker, the so-called Führer Bunker. U.S. troops liberated Buchenwald, which was a German concentration camp. Dachau concentration camp was also liberated. British troops liberated Belsen concentration camp, finding no running water and thousands of dead and rotting corpses. A massive air raid using incendiaries completely destroyed the city of Dresden. Adolf Hitler and his wife of one day, Eva Braun, committed suicide. 
Joseph Goebbels and his wife committed suicide after killing their six children. And side note, yes, I will be covering him before long. The final Allied Leadership Conference took place in Germany during July. The three main leaders, Soviet leader Joseph Stalin, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill, and U.S. President Harry Truman, met to discuss the end of World War II and how to deal with post-war reconstruction in Europe. Then we had the Nuremberg War Crimes Trials, which began during November after the end of World War II. Charges were brought against 24 higher-ranking Nazi officials for war crimes and crimes against humanity related to World War II and the Holocaust. There were a total of 216 sessions of court over a 10-month span, and a tribunal made up of U.S., British, Soviet, and French representatives conducted the trials. In the end, 12 of the defendants were sentenced to death, while others were sentenced to various lengths of prison or even acquitted. Yes. Also in 1945, United States Navy Flight 19 disappeared over the Bermuda Triangle. Flight 19 was a squadron of five Avenger torpedo bombers carrying 14 men that had been on a simple training mission before running into difficulties over the Bermuda Triangle. During this mission, all of the planes reported having compass and instrument malfunctions and, although it was unclear what actually happened, it is believed that the squadron ran out of fuel and ditched their planes into rough seas. A Mariner aircraft carrying 13 men was then sent out to search for the squadron, but also disappeared mysteriously. No evidence of the planes or bodies were ever found during subsequent searches, adding to the mystery surrounding the Bermuda Triangle. And for reference, the Bermuda Triangle is a region in the western part of the North Atlantic Ocean, including the Straits of Florida, the Bahamas and the entire Caribbean island area, and the Atlantic east to the Azores. Other notable people born in 1945 were Henry Winkler, Goldie Hawn, Bette Midler, Mia Farrow, Davy Jones, Steve Martin, and Rod Stewart. So this was the atmosphere that Christopher was born into. His parents were Coley Chapman Wilder, who was an American, and June Decker Wilder, who was a native of Australia. Coley was born in the U.S. state of Alabama in the Deep South in 1919, as several generations of Wilder men before him, same with his mother's side. Coley himself had served as a warrant officer in the U.S. Navy, which is a technical specialist who kind of directs specific activities essential to the proper operation of the Navy ship, which also requires commissioned officer authority. So he was up there, and his job was important. June was born in 1924, and the pair married in 1944 in Ryde, New South Wales, Australia. Christopher was the first of four boys the couple would go on to have. It was said that Christopher was born prematurely. He was apparently quite sickly, and he was even given last rites by a priest shortly after his birth. But he survived, and at two years old, he and his family, with some friends, some family friends, decided to go down to the beach and swim in the ocean. Christopher nearly drowned and had to be rescued by lifeguards. 
the very next year, when he was three, he began having convulsions in the family car while they were riding somewhere, and he had to actually be resuscitated, as in brought back to life. After that, sources say he was plagued with fainting spells for the remainder of his youth. What a way to start life. But outside of these brushes with death, all sources said there was nothing really negative about his childhood environment. His family was very upper middle class. He suffered no abuse or neglect of any kind, and both of his parents seemed to not be afraid to show love and affection. The family also had family friends with children, and they were all close. And because of his parents being native to two different countries, he was able to travel from Australia to the United States, where they did live for a period of time, and he also had family and friends in the States that he had positive relationships with. Zero indication of anything nefarious or negative other than his health issues and nearly drowning. But as he inched ever closer to puberty, it was said that he adopted, increasingly with each year, a more reckless attitude towards life in general, and it was becoming obvious that he was losing his sense of empathy when it came to other people, and especially so toward women. Coming out the other side of puberty is when we begin to see deviant behavior displayed. The family eventually settled back in Sydney, Australia. Concerned neighbors started noticing a shadowy figure lurking around the neighborhood, peering into their windows at night. Someone finally called the police, and lo and behold, Christopher was the peeping Tom, and the police caught him. Unfortunately, when they realized he was a local teen, they released him back to his parents with not really even a slap on the wrist. Back in the 1950s, they sort of shrugged that kind of thing off as a young boy dipping his toes into the little bit of exuberance and sexual experimentation, and nothing more. But wow, how wrong they were. And, as they always did then and in the future, they shielded young Christopher from a lot of consequences for his ever-present troubles, bailing him out any time they could because they loved him and thought that that was the best course of action. If he got into any trouble, he would tuck tail and go home, and his parents would just accept him with open arms, therefore enabling his bad behavior. But life went on, as life always does, and he entered into high school. But the more sadistic sexual thoughts turned into fantasies, which turned into a need to act on his part. So in 1963, when Christopher was 17 years old, he was doing what a lot of teens did in that area. He was hanging out with his friends on the beach, checking out chicks, typical teenage stuff. Only his particular group of friends seemed to be just as depraved as he as the beautiful, warm, sunny day went on, he and his friends drank more and more alcohol. And they collectively decided to find a young lady to entertain them. They found one by herself in a more secluded area and decided to try to ply her with alcohol and flattery. She was all of 13 years old. So when she refused to have sex with them, well, Christopher and his two buddies began to threaten her, and she was, of course, terrified, but she still refused. And so the three young men overpowered her, 
and proceeded to take turns violently raping her, and when they were done with her, they just left her there like crumpled up trash. Once she saw them far enough away from her, she got up and ran to the police for help. And, you know, they were found pretty quickly, and the boys were arrested for the sexual assault of this, again, 13-year-old girl. The young men were prosecuted, and Christopher was only sentenced to probation. But that could be due to the fact that, yet again, his parents came to the rescue to try to you know, minimize or eliminate any prison time because he was considered an adult at that time under Australian law. And the judge was impressed that Christopher had such a strong family support. So probation it was, along with, albeit some sources stated that this didn't happen, electroshock treatment. At this time, that was considered a respected and legitimate treatment. Most sources said that this did occur. He said himself that it did occur, but only a couple said that it didn't, so I'll leave that up to you. And that was his childhood. So let's take a look. So first-time parents have a lot on their plate when it comes to bringing their first child into the world, and rightfully so. It is truly one of the biggest, most important tasks a person or a couple can take on. From the common little stick with the two lines for a plus sign, the worry and the planning begin. For whatever reason, Christopher was born prematurely, and the science says babies born only a few weeks early, considered late preterm, 34 to 36 weeks, often have long-term difficulties such as behavioral and social-emotional problems, learning difficulties, increased risk of conditions such as attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, and increased risk for sudden infant death syndrome, or SIDS. For Christopher, the doctor truly believed that newborn baby Christopher was not going to survive his birth, and a priest was called in for last rites, and yet somehow he survived. What kind of impact do you think that would have on any parent? And then at two years old, he nearly drowned. So yet another near-death experience. At just three years old, he began having convulsions and had his third near-death experience and had to be brought back from death, revived. So, looking at an article written for John Hopkins, we see that a seizure occurs when one or more parts of the brain have a burst of abnormal electrical signals that interrupt normal brain signals. Anything that interrupts the normal connections between nerve cells in the brain can cause a seizure. This includes a high fever, high or low blood sugar, alcohol or drug withdrawal, or brain concussion. But when a child has two or more seizures with no known cause, this is usually diagnosed as epilepsy. Now, I don't believe Christopher had epilepsy because this was the only episode that I saw ever happening to him like this. After that was the fainting, right? So what else could have caused him to have this seizure? There's the possibility that he had an imbalance of nerve signaling brain chemicals or neurotransmitters. There is also the possibility of a brain tumor, stroke, or brain damage from an illness or injury, but in most cases, the cause simply cannot be found. But we know he went on to have several fainting spells after this seizure. Syncope is the word for fainting spells, and in children, it is a brief loss of consciousness and muscle tone or posture that can occur when not enough blood gets to the brain. In most children, it's usually harmless. 
but in a few children, syncope is serious. Fainting may be due to a heart problem or sometimes a neurological problem. Situations or illnesses that can cause syncope or mimic syncope include head injury, stroke, inner ear problems, dehydration or low blood sugar, breath holding episodes, anemia, brain mass, aneurysm or abnormality of the blood vessels of the brain, and even something as simple as coughing. But the one cause that I found the most interesting in syncope being caused is from a seizure. Now, could each of the times that he fainted during his very early childhood have been caused from additional seizures? Sure, absolutely. The source material didn't specifically point at this as being the cause, but considering he had already had one seizure, it becomes, at least to me, at least somewhat likely, plausible. Seizures aren't always the big dramatic scene we see in the media or in movies, so I find this highly interesting with regards to his later behavior, at least very noteworthy. And keep in mind his parents had three other boys to take care of as well, and I didn't, in the time I had for research, find anything indicating anything serious was going on with any of his brothers. But four kids are four kids. So with this brush with death shortly after birth, his brush with death nearly after drowning, and then having to literally be resuscitated after a seizure at just three years old, we can completely understand why his parents just cleaned his messes up, bailed him out of a lot of negative consequences. Then it was observed that the older he got and the closer to puberty he became, the less empathy he seemed to have or display for others, and it was said especially so with regards to women. And then he was busted being a peeping Tom, which is just a slang for voyeurism, right? Voyeuristic disorder is the sexual interest that comes from watching people engage in behaviors that are usually private, such as showering, undressing, or having sex. Now, the perpetrator may not be looking for sexual activity with their subjects, though they may engage in, we'll say, self-pleasuring acts, and these subjects are typically strangers who are neither aware nor consenting. So this behavior falls under the umbrella of paraphilic disorders. There are eight total conditions under paraphilic disorders, and if you'd like me to do a true crime science episode on paraphilic disorders, then let me know and I will. But the eight conditions are exhibitionistic disorder, fetishistic disorder, frauderistic disorder, pedophilic disorder, sexual masochism disorder, sexual sadism disorder, which I think I have actually covered, transvestic disorder, and voyeuristic disorder. Whew. The exact causes leading to the development of paraphilias or paraphilic disorders are not known, though some experts posit that childhood sexual trauma may play a role. But there was no sexual trauma reported, at least, with regards to Christopher at all. Doesn't mean it didn't happen, though, and that's important to remember. Others believe certain objects or situations may become sexually arousing if they are frequently associated with pleasurable sexual activity. So this Jeffrey Dahmer and his youth with the roadkill kind of thing, keep in mind. Christopher was busted being a peeping Tom and taken home where his parents just smoothed everything over and then lived as if nothing happened. Life went back to normal. 
And no one wants to believe, right, that there's something wrong with their child, especially when that child has been the cause of so much stress and anxiety. But let me tell you, and I cannot stress this enough, guys, being what I call an ostrich parent is the opposite of what any good parent should do. His parents metaphorically buried their heads in the sand. But some of the age-old excuses are, you know, oh, my child didn't mean to do it, or I was really hard on my child yesterday, so I can't be today, or kids will be kids, and so on. I believe a prime opportunity to get Christopher some help was missed here, and I believe it was a contributing factor to some degree for his later crimes. And then at 17 years old, he and his buddies gang-raped, sorry to say it, but they did, a 13-year-old girl. And while they were under the influence of alcohol, they must not have been to the point that their junk didn't work and this desire, this need for such a violent and controlling act falls under that umbrella of paraphilia issues again. Rape is not about sex. We all know this. Rape is about having power and control over another person. There might or might not have been electroshock therapy used on him as a part of his probation. Most all of the source material said, yes, he had that. So I think we can take it on faith, but again, up to you. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. So what we have here is a person who had several near-death experiences, parents who loved their son, no doubt about it, but firmly shoved their head into the sand, which did Christopher no favors whatsoever. He should have been taken for therapy and assessment, at least after his Peeping Tom episodes. But this was the early 1960s, and back then, the mental health field was still eyed very suspiciously, and it would have been, or it would have brought, a level of shame to the family. We, of course, can't fathom that because in our current times, there is zero shame at all for reaching out for help. But back then, that wasn't the case. Either way, Christopher began showing very troubling and criminal behaviors from his teens. So let's get back into the story. Once he was out of school, his parents, who again only wanted the best for their son, did try to steer him in a positive direction. According to the book, Christopher Wilder, The True Story of the Beauty Queen Killer by Jack Rosewood, his father helped him find a decent job, and both parents were always on the lookout for a good girl for him to date. So at first, Christopher wanted to live the wild life of a very young adult, but he eventually relented, settled down, and got married in 1968 when he was 23 years old. But the marriage was very short-lived. I think he even beat Kim Kardashian. It appears that... Once he was married, he kind of let go of that bit of control over his more sexually sadistic side with his wife. And in fact, the marriage lasted all of three days. She complained of sexual abuse and finally left him after finding panties, which were not her own, as well as photographs of strange naked women in a briefcase that Christopher carried in his car. Frickin' rookie. 
Then in November 1969, he used nude photographs to extort sex from a student nurse. She went to police and filed a complaint, but the charges were ultimately dropped when she refused to testify in court. And really, he was beginning to be on the radar of the Sydney police for his growing sex offenses. So Christopher decided it was time for a change. Before the year was up, he decided he was going to leave Australia and travel to the United States. I mean, he had dual citizenship after all, since his father was native to the States and the family had lived there for a period of time before returning to Australia. So he landed and settled down in Florida, just a bit north of Miami, wanting to be in the sun and on the beach, just like he had loved to be back in Sydney. He wasted no time meeting girls and having a vivid, shall we say, sex life. He was able to get a pretty upscale waterfront home and immediately dove into the real estate business, and he was quite successful. His charm and business sense had him rubbing elbows with South Florida's social and economic high-ranking people. Christopher was regularly spotted at the hippest bars and nightclubs and usually with a new and dazzling woman on his arm. He was making money hand over fist, as they say, and he gathered an impressive, small fortune. And make no mistake, he was a hard worker. There was no denying that. But with his fortune, he traveled a great deal, down to the Bahamas and over to the Hawaiian Islands. He purchased expensive and fast cars, boats, and motorcycles. He also developed quite the interest in photography and had even converted a bedroom in his home into a dark room. Attached to it was another secret room he used to develop photographs he had taken as part of his sex crimes. But his love of fast cars turned him into deciding he wanted to race as a hobby. Christopher Wilder became a part-time professional competitive car racer. But make no mistake, guys, he was still quite, quite dangerous. Between 1971 and 1975, in his late 20s and early 30s, Christopher would be faced with various charges related to sexual misconduct. He raped a young woman he had lured into his truck on the pretense of photographing her for a modeling contract, and really this was to become part of his modus operandi, or M.O., during his later crime spree. Despite several convictions, Wilder was never put in prison for any of these offenses. In 1974, he met a teenage girl and promised to make her famous. Instead, he drugged her and raped her. In October of 1977, the now 32-year-old Christopher coerced a female high school student into giving him oral sex, then threatening to beat her if she refused. And he was arrested. He admitted the crime to his therapist, but confidential interviews are inadmissible in court, and he was later acquitted. The psychologist actually deemed Christopher unsafe except in a structured environment and noted his need to dominate women and turn them into slaves for his pleasure. He had expressed interest in white slavery and spoke of his sexual fantasies, which involved twisting a woman's nipples during sex and slapping and kicking sexual partners. And side note, I really would like to know where this hatred of women came from because I saw nothing negative when it came to his mother. 
So in June of 1980, he lured a teenage girl into his car with promises of a modeling job, then drove her to a rural area where he raped her. He pleaded guilty to charges of attempted sexual battery and received five years probation with further therapy ordered by the court. Following his last arrest in Florida, the self-made man complained of suffering from blackouts. One of his most disturbing sexual crimes was that he forced two girls aged 10 and 12 to perform oral sex on him. They reported him but didn't know his name and he didn't become a suspect. It wasn't until after his later killings that they would recognize him and this incident would be held against him. Not long after this, he decided the heat was getting to be too much and he went back to Sydney, Australia. And while visiting his parents, he was charged with sexual offenses against two 15-year-old girls whom he had forced to pose nude. His parents predictably posted bail and he was allowed to return to Florida to await trial, but court delays prevented his case from ever being heard until years later. He was allowed to go back to the United States for whatever reason, and he promptly boarded a flight, leaving Australia. In February of 1984, 39-year-old Christopher would begin to commit murder. 20-year-old Rosario Gonzalez disappeared from her job at the Miami Grand Prix. Christopher had been driving as a contestant that day, and witnesses recalled her leaving with a man who fit his description. Her body has never been found. The next month, Christopher's former girlfriend, Miss Florida finalist Beth Kenyon, went missing. She had dated him for a period of time and was proposed to by him, but she declined due to their age difference. She was last seen with him at a gas station near Miami. Her car was found six days later, abandoned at the Miami airport. His first victim was an aspiring model at the time of her disappearance and had participated in the Miss Florida beauty pageant along with Kenyon. Neither woman's remains have ever been found. That same month, Christopher led 21-year-old Terry Ferguson away from the Merritt Square Mall on Merritt Island. He murdered and dumped her body at Canaveral Groves, where it was discovered five days later her body showing signs of being severely beaten. His next victim was 19-year-old Linda Grover from Florida State University, whom he abducted from the Governor's Square Mall in Tallahassee and transported across state lines to Bainbridge, Georgia. This is all still in March of 84. She had declined his offer to photograph her for a modeling agency, so her reward was that he assaulted her in the mall parking lot. He bound her hands, wrapped her in a blanket, and put her in the trunk of his car. There, in a cheap motel, she was raped repeatedly and tortured with electric shocks, her eyelids smeared with superglue. Thankfully, she ultimately escaped and locked herself in the bathroom, where she began pounding on the walls to get someone's attention for help. Spooked, Christopher fled in his car, taking all of her belongings with him. And with this, he began traveling across the United States. 
His next victim, again still in March of 84, was 23-year-old Terry Walden, who was a nursing student at Lamar University in Beaumont, Texas. It's very close to the Louisiana border. He approached her, and she turned down his offer to pose as a model. So he abducted and raped Walden for two days, stabbing her to death and dumping her body in a canal where she was found five days later. He fled in her rust-colored 1981 Mercury Cougar car and headed north from Texas to Oklahoma. On March 25th, he abducted 21-year-old Suzanne Logan at the Penn Square Mall in Oklahoma City. Christopher took her 180 miles north to Newton, Kansas, and checked into a motel. After they had breakfast the next morning, he drove them to Milford Reservoir, 90 miles northeast of Newton, where he stabbed Suzanne to death and dumped her body under a cedar tree. On March 29th, he kidnapped 18-year-old Cheryl Bonaventura in Grand Junction, Colorado. They were seen together at a diner in Silverton, where they told staff they were heading for Las Vegas. Two days later, they were seen at the Four Corners Monument, where Christopher checked into a motel in Page, Arizona. He then shot and stabbed Cheryl to death around March 31st near the Kanab River in Utah, but her body was not found for a month and a half. He then killed 17-year-old Michelle Korfman, who was an aspiring model. She disappeared from a 17 magazine cover model competition, The 17 Magazine, at the Meadows Mall in Las Vegas on April 1st. So we're just now touching into April. An actual photographer took a picture of Christopher stalking Michelle at this competition. Her body remained undiscovered near a Southern California rest stop until May 11th and was not identified until mid-June via dental x-rays because it would have been well over a month before she was found. So one victim in February escalated to six known victims in March. One victim in February, six in March. In April, near Torrance, California, he photographed 16-year-old Tina Rizico before kidnapping her and driving her to El Centro, where he assaulted her. He apparently believed that she would be of use in helping him get other victims, so he kept her alive and took her along as he traveled back east. Oh, and side note, he had now earned his place on the FBI's 10 Most Wanted Fugitives list since the second week of April. So they then traveled to Merrillville, Indiana on April 10th, where she helped him abduct 16-year-old Donette Wilt at a mall. Christopher raped Donette several times as Tina drove to New York State. Near Penyan, New York, he took Donette into the woods and attempted to suffocate her before stabbing her twice and then leaving her. Donette miraculously managed to tie a pair of jeans around herself to contain the bleeding and flag down help. She was taken to a hospital by a helpful truck driver. Now, Christopher had doubled back to the spot where he left her to make sure she was dead and panicked upon seeing she had fled. Thankfully, she survived her injuries with surgical intervention and, while recovering, told local police that Christopher was heading for Canada. 
Meanwhile, at a mall in Victor, Christopher forced 33-year-old Beth Dodge into his car and had Tina, who was still with him, by the way, follow him in Beth's car. After a short drive, he shot Beth and dumped her body in a gravel pit. Christopher then took Tina to the airport. He bought her a ticket to California, put her on the plane. Bye-bye. He then headed north, and in Beverly, Massachusetts, he unsuccessfully attempted to abduct a woman at gunpoint. On April 13th, Christopher stopped at a gas station in New Hampshire to ask directions to get to Canada. Two New Hampshire state troopers recognized his car from the FBI list and approached Christopher, who retreated to his car to arm himself with a gun. One officer was able to grab Christopher from behind, and in the scuffle, two shots were fired. The first bullet hit Christopher and exited through his back and into the officer he was tussling with. The second bullet hit Christopher in the chest, thus killing him. The officer was seriously wounded, but recovered and returned to full duty. The coroner deemed Christopher's death as a result of, quote, cardiac obliteration, end quote. It's kind of dark and morbid that I find that like a cool, you know, cardiac obliteration. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So, quoting from the source in Murderpedia, quote, There was a final ghoulish twist to Wilder's story. Following an autopsy on April 13, 1984, Dr. Robert Christie, the New Hampshire pathologist in charge of Wilder's case, received a phone call from a man claiming to represent Harvard University. Wilder's brain was wanted for study, the caller explained, in order to determine whether defect or disease had sparked his killing spree. Dr. Christie agreed to deliver the brain on receipt of a written request form from Harvard. Two weeks later, he was still waiting, and spokesmen for the university medical school denied making any such requests. End quote. That's interesting. Oh, and there are other murdered or missing women who are thought to be connected to Christopher, but have yet to be tied directly to him. So guys, what do you think? I wasn't able to find past family members that had any specific issues, and nothing really came about his three brothers, again in the time that I had to research. But with the issues he had during his childhood, perhaps he had some brain damage in those oh-so-important empathy centers of the brain— Maybe some wires crossed in his sexual desires. Maybe from fainting and having seizures and almost drowning and all these things with him, perhaps his brain got starved of oxygen a few times. But, you know, I don't know. What do you guys think? Tell me, what are your theories? Leave me a comment. You can DM me on Instagram at Serial underscore Killing, or you can come join the Serial Killing, a podcast fan page on Facebook created by a beloved listener. I'm pretty active on both of those, but most importantly, thank you so much, guys, for listening. 
because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me, and I still really appreciate that. Thanks so much, guys. Have a great day. Anybody who killed more than two or three people was a mass murderer, and whether it was all at one place or over an extended period of time, and then uh, in the early 80s, they came up with this differentiation called serial killing.